Welcome to Brain and Vat. We're going to be talking about apologies and forgiveness with a real eminent expert on the topic, Jeff Helmreich. Would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. It's a story. It happened. A fellow Charles Utley was at State Hospital for a routine treatment of some, in, some intestinal matters. They went with probes and they put some sponges in it. It was a surgery, but it was one of those surgeries was mostly for diagnostic purposes. And he had the surgery and they did the procedure. And then he went home and after a week or two, he started feeling some strange sensations in his stomach. And it started to get a little bit worse and throbbing. And he wondered maybe, you know, something happened. Maybe that the, the doctors missed something. He wasn't quite sure. Pain started to get worse, started to get feverish. He went back in to the hospital and he goes up to, he's relatively, he's not a young man. He's, I think, I would think it was in the mid sixties, late sixties. He goes to the hospital and he said, listen, I, I know that the diagnosis came up clear. I know that we had the surgery, but I'm actually in pain. It's getting worse. I can't work. I can't function. I have a fever. And they check him out and they notice that they lift the surgical sponges inside him during the operation, which is an egregious violation of just about everything. And this was a, I don't remember if it was Mass General, I remember which hospital it was, and you know, risk of, uh, to avoid being sued, I'm not going to say it, but I'm pretty sure I remember. But anyway, it was an unbelievable violation. And he, he was already suffering a lot. He had lost it, uh, days of pay, days of work, and it exposed him to lots of risk of infection and other losses. And he had them dead to rights. He had exposed, it had become clear that's what they, they were good. And he was thinking about what his next move was, whether and how they were going to figure it. Obviously they were going to remove the sponges, which they did immediately, but they were, you know, he still had quite a bit. And it's, it's one of those things where once they're in you for a while, they there's some toxicity, there's some other effects. What do I do about this? And as he was contemplating this recovery in the recovery room, the chief of surgery from the hospital came down. And I said, excuse me, are you Mr. Utley? He said, yes. I just want to say what we did to you was absolutely horrible. You are entirely within your rights to demand compensation, dress, and further damages. You were within you're in your rights to seek legal redress. But all I wanted to say is that we deeply regret, we're deeply apologetic about what happened. It was absolutely unforgivable, inexcusable, and you have every right to, we owe you what we cannot give, but I just wanted to at least let you know that it is absolutely unacceptable what we did to you. And I hope you can please forgive us at some point in the future. And at any rate, understand that we deeply regret it and we are in your debt. And he thought about it, Mr. Ugly, and I don't know what he said immediately in response. But at some point afterwards, this made you know, somehow that there was a leak about this and it, someone in, in the press had interviewed him, but it's not common to leave the surgical sponges. And they said, so are you going to sue the hospital? And he said, no. Well, what kind of redress are you getting? He says, nothing. I don't want anything from them. When the chief of surgery apologized like that and respected me like that, made me feel like a human being, that was all I needed. And I, you know, I'm okay. And I felt respected and I felt like I counted and like it mattered what happened to me. And that actually did enough for me. And mind you, it's not a wealthy person who can give or take the losses he incurred, but just assume. That. And what's interesting about this is that he had a tangible loss. Uh, it was not deliberate. It was not, it might not have even been 
entirely. Who knows how it happened? But he was willing to forgive and forego what he was entitled simply because of the manner in which he was approached and spoken to as a result. And there are countless cases. And it's actually interesting that the hospital did did not directly say that they acted in a culpable way. They did incriminate themselves. It's not clear that the apology contained all the 13 elements of some of the philosophical accounts of the paradigmatic apology, the ultimate apology, but something about simply approaching him and behaving indebtedly toward him seemed to undo and completely reconcile the conflict such that they were square at they were done and raises some questions, which is how can that happen? How can these words do that? If we believe in fact, that this was an appropriate thing for only to do, there is something to think that you should never forgive until proper redress has been rendered, proper repentance has been done. I'm sure Ali didn't check that for sure, but I think it worked. I think this is a standard condition. Actually, according to a lot of studies, they did a study in the UK not long ago in the context of car accidents. When they receive an apology, 60% of injury victims do not sue, do not seek legal redress. So there's some very tangibly measurable power of apology in these cases that outstrips what practical difference it seems to make, at least on the surface. So what do you think is going on there? So you mentioned this account of 13 elements that make the ultimate apology. I'd be curious, I know that's not your account, but I'd be curious to know what those are just vaguely. And then also on your account, if those are missing here, what is it that's present that's generating value? So I actually just threw that, that number out. I've over the years, I mean, I've read different accounts of apology through religious texts and through theorists who've written about it, psychologists who've written about it, even social theorists like Irving Goffman. And there is when you talk to people and you say, listen, I want you to tell me what is the apology really consistent? When we invited to do that, people get very elaborate and there's a point to all and they come up with some very important elements, which I think are elements of an ideal apology. And they are things like confirming the factual account of what happened. Actually, philosopher Nick Smith talks, I, I think, very convincingly about, about what it would take to have a kind of ideal or really worthy and paradigmatic apology that we should strive for with our apologies. And these elements are, I think, convincing and important. They're things like confirming the factual record. You think I did this? Well, I did do this. Accepting responsibility, reassuring that you won't do it again, agreeing with your victim about the morality of the situation. We agree it was wrong for the same reasons. There's a showing that you will, you have changed or that you're not, uh, uh, that you've been moved by the situation, not to be inclined to repeat it in other contexts, not just reassuring the victim will do it to them again, but kind of showing genuine repentance that you've really worked it out. I think these are all valuable and important. I think they are properly characterized as a paradigmatic, but in almost all cases that I can think of where apologies make a practical difference, many of these elements are going to be missing. How likely is it that two parties to a conflict where it's not an outright case of evil wrongdoing and an outright case of innocence on the other side, they're, they're going to completely agree or be able to, to ascertain that they can agree on the morality of the situation. Exactly how much is the perpetrator going to be admitting to in a case like this? Is the perpetrator admitting to having been negligent in the way that they handled the surgery? Or might it have been the case that there was a fire drill at just that point in the hospital, took us from the sponges and 
the reason that we're entirely innocent, nevertheless morally responsible, the surgeons had to run out and, they, and perhaps the patient had contributed some way unexpectedly to the sponges being left there. It's not clear from what the surgeon said, at least as I recounted it, it's not clear you'll have just agreement on the morality. It's not clear that uh, how much responsibility and culpability is actually being accepted by the speaker in these. But what is present in this instance, I think is what I would take to be the fundamental function of apology, which I want to distinguish from the elements of the content of apologetic discourse. There's the actual behavioral function of apology, which I think is present here, which is that you treat your victim as someone it was unacceptable to do that to. And that I think is present. I think what the moral difference that apologies make have to do with undoing a kind of mistreatment that always echoes in the aftermath of a wrong, which is a treating the victim as though it's acceptable. Usually when you wrong somebody and you just leave it in place, you don't make up for it properly. One of the things you also do, adding insult to injury is you're treating the victim as though it's acceptable. Simply wronging somebody and walking on is a treatment. It constitutes a negative treatment of someone that this is acceptable. And that's what apologies paradigmatically, or in my case, in my opinion, at least that's what the uh, apologies essentially undo or counteract this treating them like it's acceptable, acting like it's okay. And so what you're doing in this case is you're actually quite the opposite, you're putting in place a new kind of treatment with the victim, one that commits you to the stance that it's not accepted. And that occurs in this example. And I think that's why it works so effectively. So it seems that one of the reasons why it's effective in the case that you've illustrated is that there's a sincere belief on behalf of the patient that the chief of medicine, who's, I imagine, really apologizing on behalf of his staff, but that there's something sincere, that there's a recognition that there's a wrong and there's a reconciliation in the relationship. The fact that it comes from a senior figure, I imagine, played some weight for your friend. Now, it seems to me that it's interesting that this is the case in medical cases. I do some medical malpractice in my legal practice, and I gather one of the reasons that people often sue is they say the doctor never apologized, and that's an additional wound, and therefore I, I'd like to sue this person. But we have this other phenomenon in the case of offensive speech, where someone will utter a word that's sort of fallen out of favor, not necessarily a racial slur, but you know something adjacent to that, and there'll be enormous pressure brought to bear on them. If we think about someone like I think Benedict Cumberbatch used the word colored. In South Africa, the word colored refers to a distinct racial group of people who are Malay. In the UK, it has a certain meaning. But in America, it's seen as an offensive term. And, you know, he said it rather innocently. And then was enormous pressure brought to bear on him to apologize. And he did apologize. But often what happens in these cases with the apology is that the apology is not viewed as good enough, regardless of it's viewed as an admission of guilt. It's to say, well, We've determined the merits of your case. Now the only question is how many lashings should we be giving you? And so instead of it having the effect with the doctor, which is to say, well, now we've reconciled and we can move on, it's now to say, well, you've admitted guilt. How long should you be in the dog box for? If you're Louis C.K. and you make an apology for you know, having sex with someone, well, not even having sex, masturbating in front of someone, after asking, they said yes, and eight years later, a complaint comes out because they're also comedians and they're not quite as famous as Louis C.K. So he apologizes and it basically ends his career for years. He's in the dog box. His Emmy winning show gets hauled off of HBO 
It seems that apologies are acting in a dysfunctional way nowadays. How do you make sense of that? It's an excellent problem. And it's true. Apologies are often considered an admission of guilt and apologies are also considered cheap because talk is cheap. And when you combine those two, you end up with a case where apologies seem only to entrench rather than to resolve the conflict. And I think two things are happening there. One is that the apology, because it's required, is not considered sincere. On the other hand, they already consider the person guilty, but now the apology confirms it on the record. It's like the cops, you know, they don't care how much evidence they have. They need that confession. And so people regard the apologetic aspect of it as insincere. That is to say the remorse mission of acceptance of responsibility is insincere, but they take the confessional part that's to say the admission of fact. And I think that this is unfortunate, but I, I'm not sure that it's altogether. I think in cases of public conflict, it's, we see it even more now, but in case of public conflict, in cases where you wrong somebody in front of others or with the knowledge of others, uh, of others, a sooner or later pressure is brought to bear. Whenever pressure is brought to bear for an apology, even in courtrooms, when the judge asks to show remorse, the lawyer says, you got to apologize now to your victims, otherwise the judge will sentence you to a tougher sentence. In all of these cases where you're called upon to apologize, it challenges the sincerity of the apology. And, um, and at the same time, it confirms your guilt because if you're truly innocent, they say, why apologize? Why would you apologize for your innocence? And I think that, I think this is, all of this is a result of placing too much emphasis on the verbal semantic content of the utterance of it. I am sorry. How sincere is that? I am sorry. What does that implicate or presuppose about what you did? And I think if we focus more on the function, the remedial function apology performs, I think we can see both why these cases are abound and yet why it is that they don't necessarily undermine the true power of apologizing. Because if we look at apologies different as something that really doesn't, it only incidentally involves words, it doesn't have to. In some cultures, in Japan, often you can apologize with a bow, that an apology is actually a matter of acting on your newly acquired non-acceptance of what you do, of rejecting what you do, rejecting that this was acceptable. And it's not a description. It's a commissive utterance. So a commissive utterance is like, I promise. I forgive you. I pledge loyalty. These are commissive utterance. They're called that because they commit. And an apology is not a one-off act. It commits you, which is to say it puts in place what I call a stance of treating somebody different, of acting towards somebody in a new light. And that's the beginning. That's not where it happens. You're in this new stance of relating towards the victim as someone you owe not to do what you did and whom you don't accept what you did to. And that stance is what the apology puts in place, but that stance is what does the remedial work, not the immediate words of the apology. You're putting in place a new stance that the apology itself manifests, but just begins of treating the victim in a new way. And notice that this is something that you really should do. Even if what you did was not necessarily culpable, even when you, you know, if you jostle somebody and they spill all their, spill their coffee on themselves, they get all wet and they get all, you know, but let's say you do it cause you're on a train or you're in a, you're in a rocky area and a shaky, a shaky monorail and it shakes you and 
you spill it, you bag it into something, they spill all their stuff. It's not your fault, but yet it's understood almost automatic that you should say, sorry. In most cultures, anyway, you should say sorry. In the English culture, it's actually understood in many more contexts to say sorry. Is in a lot of studies on the over apologeticness of the British. But why is that? Because even when you did no wrong, leaving it in place is still a matter of treating somebody as though it's acceptable to harm them. It's acceptable to have done what you did, and that's something you have to undo. Even when you did no wrong, once you cause a problem, once you cause harm in a certain, there's the remaining question of how are you going to treat your victim now as someone it's acceptable to do that to. Now, why do I answer this in response to your question about sex offenders apologizing? Well, because one of the uh, points it brings out is that apology doesn't necessarily amount to an admission of guilt. Because apology is appropriate in all cases where you harm somebody else, and because it's really about behaving towards someone that's unacceptable, it, it is appropriate and often done in cases where no guilt was or no culpability, no fault. People sometimes say the essential feature of apology is I messed up or my bad, or I did wrong. But in these cases, at least apologies don't involve wrong. And that suggests that even in the standard case, an apology isn't necessarily an admission of culpability or responsibility. I know this is a little bit against the grain of how apologies are understood, but I think the act of apology really works its magic in a lot of contexts where it's not clear there was an admission of guilt. And it's also works its magic in cases where it goes beyond words. In fact, when it's properly done, it isn't just, it isn't just a description of my position on the matter. I have yes, judge, yes, your honor, yes, your victim, I apologize. That's just a description. That's just an utterance describing where I stand. But a true apology takes a stance towards you, it puts in place a new kind of behavior. And when we focus on the behavioral and relational functions of apologies, we move away from reducing it to a one-off statement. A descriptive statement either about what happened about one's own guilt and that both explains why the words are cheap and often considered insincere or otherwise ineffective but i think apologetic behavior can be very powerful you know overstep and overachieve the context in which we normally box it so i have two questions jeff so the one is this over apologetic uh, phenomenon, which I find very interesting because I have a partner who's very apologetic about all sorts of things. And we've now instituted a rule where whenever he apologizes for something that needn't have an apology, I get reparations that I don't deserve. And it's worked wonders. I've had massages all the time. It's, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful institution, but it got me thinking about what he means when he says, I'm sorry a lot of the time. So something bad will happen to me that has nothing to do with his wrongdoing. And he'll say, I'm sorry. And actually, I think what he means is something bad has happened to you. And I wish that had not happened, even if I'm not the one who did it. So let's say, I mean, this didn't happen, but let's say I was hit by a truck. I mean, it, he would say, I'm sorry for something much less than that. He would say, sorry for, I forgot an appointment. So it's actually my fault. So he'd say, oh, I'm sorry that happened. So it's almost like something bad has happened. And I wish that was not the case. That seems to be a meaning of I'm sorry. And I wonder whether that is insufficient in cases where wrongdoing has happened on the part of the apologizer. So when someone does do something wrong and all they say is, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you, is that sufficient as an apology? And suppose they're sincere in that, but they have reasons for thinking they would do it again if it was because they have their own reasons for having performed that action 
or perhaps they had reasons at the time, even if they don't have reasons to do it again. The point is that enough for an apology. So I'm claiming that you can apologize and that you should apologize, even in cases where you didn't actually do anything wrong, that it's still appropriate to apologize and to act as though it's unacceptable, not to stand by and accept what happened. But that might risk seeing apology as the kind of bystander. Sorry, sorry that happened to you. And actually, it's actually a common usage. We say it in when we console people, sorry for your loss. We certainly don't mean we inflicted the law. We did this. We say, sorry for your loss. And I think it's just an unfortunate consequence of the fact that we don't have a rich enough vocabulary. And so we've come to use it as the sort of immediate term for, we regret what we just saw. We wish that didn't happen. And even though I've been claiming that apology is appropriate when you didn't necessarily act cult. And that what really matters is the behavioral apologetic that the utterance puts in place. I don't think that an apology would be appropriate along the lines of, I had nothing to do with it, but I'm sorry. If I said, when I accidentally or blamelessly, when I harm you in a way that's quite clear, I'm outright culpable, but it's, I still did something that I ought to make up for. It would be inappropriate if I said, listen, it was inevitable. It was a force of nature, but still, I'm sorry. So you can have your sorry, nothing else, but you can have your sorry. I, you do get a sorry for this, even though of course we know that it was impossible for you to avoid it was unpreventable. And Bernard Williams talks about a thought experiment. You're probably familiar with it, that, that captures this rather well. In his essay, Moral Luck, he talks about a lorry driver, I suppose as a truck driver in England, and is driving safely and slow enough, but through a residential area. And it's a larger truck, a little bit off the ground. And the driver can't see that well in front of him. He sees as well as you're supposed to driving a lorry. But for whatever reason, unfortunately, a toddler suddenly crawls unavoidably in front of the truck and kills the top. It's understood by hypothesis he was driving safe and careful. And by hypothesis, this was unavoidable and unpreventable. But what Williams says with the example is that the driver will necessarily, in most cases, automatically feel not just I, that's terrible that I just witnessed or that I was especially conspicuously close to, but I feel bad. I feel personally self-criticizably regretful about what I did. And he calls this self-critical agent regret because he wants to distinguish it from guilt, which I suppose he thinks is only appropriate where you're actually culpable. But he wants to distinguish it from mere regret, which he says is what perhaps passenger in the seat next to him might think. That's awful what I just was involved in or was near or what bystanders would think. And it's an interesting phenomenon because as Williams perceptively notes, it would be appropriate for people who witnessed this horrible, tragic event to console the driver, say, I I feel so bad for you that you were involved in this. It's not your fault. I hope you know you did everything. It's appropriate for them to console. And he says it's inappropriate for him to be consoled. It's inappropriate for him to that it, both they should reasonably, in fact, they should be required to say, you're, you're above reproach, completely above criticism. There's nothing for you to feel guilty. And yet if the driver were to answer them, say, you know what? You're right. Forget this. I'm going to clear. I didn't do anything. My hands were clean. Uh, he would be considered monstrous. Even though from an objective point of view, their position was entirely justified. And if he were to take that objective point of view, he'd be justified. Still, absolutely considered monstrous, he's supposed to accept some 
role. And I think that's actually right. I think if Ward Williams doesn't take it to the next step and talk about why this is, because he's mostly bringing it in his typical fashion, he's bringing this out as objective observation that itself serves as counterexample to a lot of ideas, but he doesn't give the theory. But he does suggest that if the driver were to apologize, it would be a kind of self-referential. It would be an apology that doesn't say, I'm sorry that happened to you. I wish that didn't happen because I'm sorry I did this to you. I feel guilty that I did it. And it's crucial that even though he's not culpable, he did it. It's unfortunate that Williams' own essay and your question brings out the fact that we don't have a rich enough vocabulary. So sorry might be the words he uses, but the same words that the bystanders. And regret, he calls it agent regret, but it's really a bad term for it. It's an unfortunate term for it. It's not really regret. It's just that we reserve the word guilt for outright culpability, shame for entirely lacking culpability. And so he coins this awkward agent regret for this middle phenomenon because we don't have a proper term for what is very much like feeling, except that you don't hold yourself responsible. And I think again, because these are really behaviors we have to initiate towards one another, our words are lagging behind to try and capture them, trying to give voice to them. the social wisdom that led us to, to develop these practices, I think outstrips the vocabulary that was developed much later to try to account for that. And the wonderful example of how it is that we sometimes are moved to own up, even when we didn't do anything wrong and why sorry isn't enough, even where I was wrong would be too much. So now this raises some very interesting questions, but the one I want to focus on is, so where does the value lie in the apology? Is the value because it does something good to the person apologizing? Or is the apology valuable because it, as you said, heals or redeems the relationship between the person that is apologizing and the victim, or perhaps the victim's family, or you know, some extension of the victim, or is it something good for the victim if the victim is still around? If it's something that's good for the apologizer, then it seems very strange to be holding these attitudes because the attitude is, I did nothing wrong and I know that, but at the same time, I feel like my causal component in this is highly significant, not because I did anything intentional, but just because I was the person driving the truck, I was the person whose truck hit the infant and that somehow imbues upon me enormous weight and a need to feel certain things and to process this and to have sleepless nights and to engage in conversations about it and maybe go to trauma counseling and meet the family and go to their funeral for the infant, et cetera, et cetera. And this needs to leave a deep indelible scar in my life, even though I did nothing intentional to bring that about. That's weird. And where's the value in that? It just seems it's messed up my life. It hasn't made my life better. So it doesn't seem like it's imbued positive value on my life as the apologizer. And if that's the case, where does the value lie? You know, right. why is it that we need sincerity in the apology? Right. And I think just to make the question even more challenging, it doesn't once you say, I did nothing wrong and it's not my fault, but here's your apology, it doesn't seem like it does much to the apologizee either. So, so where is the value? And I think the value lies in what you would do to the victim if you didn't say all that. And what you would do then is add, as the saying goes, add insult to injury. You would do then. Imagine if the driver just, you know, did, 
ran over the child, got out of the car, checked what happened, did ascertain that it wasn't his fault and walked on, you know, drove away, you know, sorry for you all, but wasn't me. I'm not culpable. I think we're done here. You know, good luck with all that. I think if the driver had done that, what he would be doing is in effect saying, uh, I harmed you. And that's entirely okay. I treat that as acceptable. And if you notice that runs counter to how we treat people, how ethics strictly requires us to treat people otherwise, which is, you know, before we get out, before when we get into our cars, when we carry our dangerous objects or our heavy objects or our hot liquids, as we go about the universe, bumping up against one another, what ethics by any standard requires us to do is to take very special care to avoid harming others, not to avoid harming them culpably. Not to avoid harming them in a bad way. When I, when I get in the car, I drive fast. I, say, I don't think, I hope I don't culpably hit someone. Or I'm striving not to culpably hit someone. I'm striving not to hit someone. In fact, it would be culpable if I was only trying to do it to avoid culpable hitting someone. Negligence requires that you take care not to inflict harm. Rather, I should say non-negligence requires that you take care not to inflict actual harm on anybody. And if that's how we are required to treat one another, that it has something to say about what happens after we inflict harm. After we inflict the harm, the same thing applies. Just we still owe those people the respect and the treatment that, that it's unacceptable to harm them. If we do harm them, acting in a way that is regretful and that is unaccepted of what we did to them. It's what Elizabeth Anderson and Richard Pilnes call expressive harm. And in this case, it's that it was acceptable to do this horrible thing. And that's something we, for the same reason we try not to do it beforehand, we owe this kind of apologetic discourse, this kind of regretful, taking it back, trying to undo it behavior after it. So if we didn't do that, I think we would be mistreating the victims worse. Now notice I'm talking about treatment and respect. I'm not talking about the psychological impact any of this might actually have. It's hoped that if you treat somebody with the respect that's due and you avoid mistreating them and insulting them further and disrespecting them, that they will be relieved that this will go some of the way towards restoring their dignity as, as happened in the case I brought up at the beginning. But that's still a further question. Doing what's right in all of ethics is hopefully aimed at people feeling better about it, but it's, it doesn't always have that effect. There are people who, I mean, right, one of the paradoxes of the police are due immediately, but that's when they're least likely to be either sincere or effective. Right when it happened is when apologies are least like, you know, people are still in the throes of anger and upset and outrage. And the victim, you know, the, the victimizer is, didn't have time to really sink in what he did. And yet apologies are delinquent, getting more and more delinquent the longer they're delayed. So again, it's because the primary point of is to reverse a mistreatment, uh, to treat the victim a different way from how you would treat them if you did not and and it's a kind of indebted stance that you treat them as though you owed them different, but it was too, or you should not have done this, but you did. And then it's something that you know is right and you know is due, but it might take even you yourself, the apologizer, time to let it sink in, to internalize it properly. Sincerity might be a project as opposed to a property of the apology. So it seems to me that there's quite a lot of ambiguity that goes on. So we can imagine someone who is legally culpable for their actions and they're mandated by a court to apologize. So you can imagine a defamation case, you call someone a pedophile and it's false and you're found to have committed an act of defamation. And one of the things that you're required to do is to apologize. 
it seems like the apology flows from the legal wrong that you commit. Then we have the cases where you've actually done something immoral. So you acted in a negligent or intentional way that caused someone harm, and we think that you have a moral obligation to apologize. And the case we've been talking about now involved neither of those. But nonetheless, we think that an apology is due. And it seems that if it's not through law and not through morality, it must be through custom. So through some kind of politeness norm. So we say, well, you don't owe this person an apology because you wronged them, but this bad thing has happened. And because you were adjacent to it, the polite thing to do is to pretend that you were the wrongdoer and say, I am sorry. And not to say it in a way of, I'm sorry this thing happened to you, or I'm sorry how you feel, but to take on the mantle of responsibility, even in cases where you're not actually responsible. And there's this funny theatrical game that gets played, and we think that's what the politeness norm is. And then in your failure to do that, in other words, if you were to rely on the other norms, like the moral or the legal, and say, well, none of those apply, so I'm not apologizing, we would then think that you've done something polite, and that politeness failure would require an apology. If politeness is always the repository, the next stop after ethics is rejected is what's going on. If it's not morality that's doing the work here, it must be some very thin and loose kind of this, this sort of almost contemptible norms of politeness and, and etiquette. But I want to resist that. I want to say morality is what's at play. And all of this talk about what you owe or what, how you ought to treat people, including the victims of your blameless harm, the ought in terms of how you want to treat those victims is immoral. It's just that it turns out there's a lot more to what we morally ought to do for each other than what we are absolutely forbidden and absolutely permitted to do. There's a lot in between. And I think that for the most part, we focus too much on the blameworthy and the outright culpable, and as though everything outside that is outside morality's purview. But in fact, first of all, I think the mistreatment that you would be inflicting if you, the accidental or the blameless injurer failed to do something about it, would be mistreatment that is morally problematic morally something you should not do for the reasons that I said, for the reasons that you'd be acting, you'd be acting as though it's acceptable to harm someone. And I think it's also what you say in that, in the case of the blameless, you're not pretending to be more culpable than you are, but you're also not characterizing yourself as entirely without action in the affair. What you're saying is I did something that is morally reprehensible, deeply disvalued. It happens not to be an outright wrongdoing the category of things that I am antecedently forbidden to do, but it's something that I am for moral reasons as a moral agent, deeply committed to disvalue. It's what we disvalue when we set about to be careful to her. What we disvalue, what morality and for moral reasons makes us disvalue is causing injury and harm to others. That's what half of our morality is aimed to prevent and aimed at, which means that even when it's not by violating an outright moral commandment, um, when we harm others, we get in morality's territory and we do something that for moral reasons, we find highly disvalued. And it's for similar moral reasons that we'd have to undo that. We have to say, listen, I did something that I find in some cases, monstrous, morally unacceptable, even if not morally forbidden. And I owe you an apology, even if I don't owe you outright address. And even if the apology I owe you is not necessarily an admission of culpability in the strict black and white sense. But what I did is something that I disvalued for more than we disvalued. 
And treating you as though it was otherwise acceptable is disvalued also, unacceptable for moral reasons. And it's for those moral reasons that I'm now saying I did it. I personally did something that I shouldn't have done, that I strive deeply not to do, and that I now deeply regret having done. And I think all of that is moral. It's just in the in-between zone between upright guilt, responsibility, old sense blameworthiness, and pure permitted, but let's just be polite or let's just be super derogatory and throw on this apology. Anyway, it's between those. And I think that's because morality actually is much richer than the old categories that lead us to think it's either owed or due, or it's just a matter of etiquette. And of course, when you are guilty, it's a different apology and it has different content, which, which we can talk about, but I think it's somewhat subtle and delicate what's going on in actually much more common case of the blameless apology. So I think it's fair to say that sincerity is a very important part of what you think makes an apology successful. I'm not sure whether you're going so far as to say it's necessary or sufficient, but it's a very important component and at least contributes in many cases to a successful apology. So now there's interesting questions around when it's not an individual who's apologizing, but a collective or a group or an organization who's apologizing. So now, I mean, imagine uh, Russia suddenly develops a conscience and says, whoops, I shouldn't have done that. And they apologize to Ukraine for what they've done. What would it mean for Russia to be sincere in its apology? Does that mean all Russians must feel that they've done something wrong? Does it mean that just the president of Russia needs to feel that he's done something wrong? Is it some sort of distributed hierarchy of different levels of feeling about this, depending on the agency involved at the time. And similarly for an organization, corporations apologize. And I think a lot of people treat those apologies with a level of skepticism, perhaps because they just don't think corporations are the kinds of entities that can feel anything, never mind sincerity. Right, yeah, so we're in a bit of a bind because we demand apologies from the corporation that spilled the oil in the ocean or from a country that invaded another. And yet it they can't be sincere, which I agree with you, is an important element of apologizing. Are we just doomed to have something we need and yet can't quite get in the right way from some of the most important conflicts that moral repair might help us with otherwise? And are we just doomed to failure? So I th I'm actually much more hopeful. I think that countries and corporations and collectives can apologize sincerely. I think the reason people think that they can't has to do with a misreading of what goes on in the individual. Um, so we often think that what goes on with individuals is when they apologize, they have to be sincere. And what people think sincerity means is remorse, feeling bad. And what they think feeling bad means is having a kind of affective emotional state, a pain or a sting of guilt feelings or something to that effect that arrests you psychologically as an episode. You can feel the hypothalamus and the heart beating and the tears. And it's just a no brainer that organizations institutions can't have that. But I don't think it's right to say that sincerity really requires that. It may often manifest, but even in the individual, when you think about the fact that apologies are due immediately and that they're due verbal as an overt behavior, you know, I say to a child, apologize to your sister and do it sincerely. <laughs> How are they going to be sincere? How are they going to get the sincerity going in them immediately? Or the judge says, you know, show some remorse to the victim. I think we all have to hear an apology. What are the chances that at exactly that moment, when the apology is most called for and most appropriate, 
the person is going to get just the right pangs and episodes and effective states of precise sadness, the precise emotional register that is told for. And I think the reason that's so unlikely is that we don't really demand quite that of sincerity. What we mean is that they accept the reasons why the apology was due. They accept and internalize that it is cold. They accept that they did something wrong, that it is morally unacceptable, that they owe the victim better, that they owe the victim not to do what they did, that they owe the victim a debt that they cannot repay without the victim's forgiveness. And they accept all of these elements, which are the real elements, accept them, internalize them. I think that's what sincerity actually requires. I think what sincerity requires is doing it for the right reasons and internalizing those reasons. And if you accept the reasons to apologize, just like with forgiveness or anything else, if you accept that someone should be forgiven for the reasons that they've done their part, or you want to move on and you want not to hold it against them anymore, there's no way you can monitor whether the affective states bubble up back in you seconds later or even years later. But if that's what sincerity required, then we would never have sincere forgiveness. And that brings us to the case of corporations and countries. I think corporations and countries do act for reasons. Um, because first of all, they act, they invade each other. If it's a country or they defend, or they, they oppose things, they support things. And if you ask, why did they do that? You can find answers. You can find answers to why a country took a certain thing to be its entitlement and why a corporation hired this person and fired that person, why a corporation changed its behavior. And you can analyze whether the reasons the corporation and the collective did this or that line up with the reasons that certain things are or are not acceptable or are not valued or disvalued, forbidden or prohibited. And it, it involves looking into how it is that countries, corporations come to act and the reasons why they take the actions they do, which will not be the same investigation as when you psychologically investigate a person, but it is an investigation that's out there to perform. As long as we accept that countries and collectives can act and that they can act for reasons, there's a why as to why they took the action they, and an end that their instrumental actions were serving, then we can investigate whether that end is the right end, that reason is the right reason, and whether it's truly guiding and motivating the corporation, or is it just some other end that's acting in disguise? And because that analysis is available at the collective and corporate context, I think apologizing sincerely is something we can find in these contexts as well. A lot of what happens in the country and the corporate case is really someone apologizing on behalf of someone else. So there'll be some employee at the company who's performed the wrong, and you'll have the head of the company saying, we're very sorry that we failed you, and this is unacceptable conduct. But the person making the apology is not the person who performed the wrong. You could have it, for example, with long delays of time as well. So you can imagine the German government today making an apology for its activities in Namibia against the Herrera, saying we apologize for the wrongs that were committed 100 years ago, and we take some responsibility for that, even though everybody who performed the wrong is dead. And it seems like partly how you're cashing this out is you want to say that there can be this distance between the agent who acts intentionally and the act of the apology, because the person who apologizes is recognizing that there is reason to apologize given the circumstances of what occurred. Now, I wonder how far we can take this. You know, can someone say, well, I'm a member of the human species and I apologize for this guy who went on a murderous rampage and I didn't do it myself, but I feel like we're sufficiently connected and we're all one man 
And so I apologize for this guy. Would that be a good apology? Are there obligations to accept the apology? So you can imagine, let's say the person who goes on the murderous rampage apologizes to all the survivors of the rampage and says, look, I know what I did was wrong and I realized this. Is there an obligation on those survivors or the victim's families to accept the apology? At what point would that obligation kick in? And would that obligation be the same? Let's say the person was a postal office worker and so the post office apologizes for him. You know, Jason, who's a massive empath, says, well, I apologize on behalf of this guy too. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great objection. It's very much what I've had in mind while you've been speaking. And I just want to give you an example from a cheesy television series. I love cheesy television series. So it's from season one of Chicago Fire. And it's about these American firemen. And it just so happens that in one of these episodes, these Canadian firemen come and visit them. And all the American firemen are very respectful, except one who really isn't. And he goes after these Canadians. And at some point they say to him, just what is this about? You know, we haven't done anything wrong to you. Why are you badgering us? And he says, well, let me tell you a story. And he tells him the story about how 20 years earlier, his sister was trying to get into Canada and she was struggling to get over the border. And there was this particular guy behind the immigration desk who gave her trouble and it cost them a lot of money. And since that day, he has harbored a dislike for Canadians. And he says, I feel it towards the two of you. And then half in jest, but half not, one of the Canadian firemen says, on behalf of the country of Canada, we apologize. And he kind of thinks about that for a moment and then nods. And it's quite an interesting moment because at the same time, it seems absurd to hold these two Canadian firemen 20 years after the fact, even though they have nothing to do with the original wrong, responsible for it, it seems equally absurd to think that they could apologize for it. But at the same time, it's effective. So it seems to me like if you think that the bigotry is misplaced, then you should also think that the apology is misplaced. But we don't. We think the apology is successful, but the bigotry is misplaced. And that seems incorrect to me. And that's why I'm skeptical about group apologies on behalf of someone else in the group. Excellent. And so let me separate two questions, if you don't mind. First is the question of whether it is at all appropriate to apologize for somebody else. Second is the question of whether it's appropriate at all. And if it is appropriate, is it sufficient? And we've all done it. I can think of a time I apologized from being half of men, or at least I, or, you know, and, and I'm a teacher. A lot of us in this business are teachers. And sometimes somebody behaves in a very disrespectful way in the classroom. You know what I'm saying? I just want to say, I apologize for the way you were treated. Or sometimes a student will say to a fellow student, I apologize for the way you were treated. I apologize for what happened. Stand against what you just went through. At the hands of this third party, you had nothing to do with. Now, again, they'd say the same thing. If before that, this person was sitting next to the victim and the victim said, Hey, how could you sit there while that happened? And say, Hey, don't hold it against me. I didn't do it. Hold it against the, every single member of the classrooms because of what that one bully did. It would be right to say, I right, don't hold it against me. But on the other hand, if they did say, I apologize on behalf of what that person did, it'd be appropriate. I think the reason is that blame and apology don't always line up. So I think if apologizing is on some level a way of counteracting leaving the wrong in place as acceptable. Then there are quite a few ways to leave the wrong in place as acceptable. One of them is to stand idly by and watch it happen and say nothing and do nothing. Some people think that's even worse in some ways than perpetrating just being entirely indifferent to it. 
whether you think that or not, there's something to this idea that standing idly by requires a way of accepting and at least behaving towards the victim as though it's acceptable. You sit next to the person who's berated, bullied in the classroom. You do nothing and you say nothing. There is a sense in which you could feel appropriately, the victim could feel that you accept it. You're fine with it. And so apologizing in a way counteracts that. And right? Apologizing on behalf makes sense, but it doesn't quite come to the level of being sufficient to undo or counteract or in any way act against the primary wrong. Doesn't mean it's not a, a sensible thing to do. It just means it's partial. But the bystander who apologized, I want to apologize for what you just went through. That other person did, men did, is different from the president of a country or the chairman of an organization that works on behalf of a minority or a majority that's been oppressed or is not a country necessarily, but a collective of people. Uh, we had pre President Obama and President Clinton were constant, you might say compulsive apologists. They just went through a series of beautiful apologies on behalf of all kinds of historical atrocities and missteps the United States had undertaken. Uh, President Clinton apologized for the Karamatsu internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. President Obama apologized for the Tuskegee experiments in Haiti that basically performed live human experiments as, as if they were you know, lab rats or guinea pigs. It was awful. But this were decades later, and I'll bet most Americans don't even know that these apologies happened or even that the atrocities for which they were uttered happened, much less shared in the sentiment that a sincere apology is supposed to express. So how is it that when you rightfully resent what a country did, a sole member of that country can perform the apology for it and have it be adequate? And I think part of the answer lies in the fact that a country is an organization and organizations act differently from the way groups, mere collections of people act. If somebody was drowning near a beach and no one did anything about it, there were no lifeguards. And after the person drowned and I went to the family and said, I was on that beach and I want to apologize for what my fellow beachers and I failed to do. They would say, yeah, I'm glad you're apologizing, but who are you to apologize for all those other negligent and different people? And they'd be right to say because a collection on a beach is just a group of individual people, each of whom is equally indifferent. A collective, however, is not a collection. An organization is not a collection. It's not a mere bunch of people, each of whom has something to answer for it, all of whom fail. An organization has a structure that makes it act as one. And that structure puts certain people in conspicuous power, in conspicuous roles of being able to act on behalf. And what, you know, what the president is doing when they utter or issue the apology is they're acting in their role, empowered by the organization structure as a whole to speak for the organization and to take action for the organization. And even then, of course, this, the mere utterance isn't enough, but if President Clinton's apology were followed by action, it shows that the United States has internalized and accepted the reasons why it was wrong. Perhaps they pass reparations for the victims of their oppression. Perhaps they start new policies that reflect having internalized and appreciate these reasons. And that really put in place an indebted stance towards the Haitians, the case of Obama's apology or the Japanese American case of Clinton's apology. I think we would say it's sincere because it's not a one person happening to do it on behalf of the group. It's the person who's empowered to act on behalf of the group. 
And what we want when a collective or an organization apologizes is that action be taken by them for the right reasons. But it, groups are structured in a, collectives and corporations are structured in a funny way when there's individuals who are at the top and who can act for them, which is that many people are excluded from the process. They have delegated to the president or to the leader the ability to act on their behalf. And I think that's appropriate. I think that's how corporations work. And so when Clinton apologizes for what the U.S. did or when the Pope apologizes for what the Catholics did, which John Paul II in particular was quite the apologizer, a lot of such collective apologies for the Catholic people over centuries, some of which were very effective. I think that it's different from a mere member of the collective apologizing to the other. I don't think that the Canadian on the show was in power to speak for the Canadians. It would be more like the case of the classmate or the beach mate. I'm helping. I'm starting a process. I should apologize because I, for one, shouldn't fail to apologize, but that's just a drop in the bucket. So I wonder whether the cases of apology that you've mentioned by US presidents aren't very interesting. The reason they're very interesting is because they're for actions that happened a long time ago. And there's two ways of understanding this. If I understand you correctly, the way to understand it, the apology is on behalf of the group. It's coming from a member of the group who is entitled or empowered to make that apology because they have been given a position of power within the group to do so. And so they can successfully apologize on behalf of the group, even if that group stems back 50 years, 100 years, thousands of years, they can do so successfully. That's one understanding of what's going on. When the Pope does it, when presidents do it for atrocities committed in decades past or centuries past. I wonder though, if there's not a different, more skeptical understanding or cynical understanding of what's going on. And that would be that the president is saying, we are not the same group anymore. That was a group that was associated with us and we are severing that connection and we will not perform actions like they did in the future. And we are sorry that happened to you. So that sense of apology that that agent regret that we discussed earlier. I wonder whether that's not what's going on here. It's saying, I'm sorry there was this group that's associated with us that did this long ago, but we will not do that to you. And we want to publicly acknowledge that something wrong was done to you, and we will not do that as well. Yes, and I think this kind of duality characterizes even the individual apologize, where the person says, I want you to know I'm not the same guy I'm not the same guy who did that. You should know I'm not the guy who did that. But if they went too far with that and said, I'm not the guy who did that. So, you know, it's not me who I'm apologizing for. It's that other guy I used to be. Then we'd say it's a defective apology. Apologizers are supposed to own up to what they did. You apologize for what they did. If you apologize by separating yourself from what you did, it's a defective and failed apology. On the other hand, you do want to say, and it seems effective to say, I'm not the same guy anymore. And I think it would have been problematic. I mean, you can imagine if the new South Africa apologized for what was done by the de Klerk South Africa, the apartheid South Africa in the eighties, there was something weird in that because there it would be so accurate to say, we're not the same government. We're not the same people that it would actually make the apology misplaced. It would be in at least where it's an apology an outright a full apology for wrongdoing. Apology, Asian regret apology might be appropriate there, but a full apology to Rome would be inappropriate. What Clinton was trying to, and was hopefully credited with having done, I mentioned Clinton Obama because in the Trump presidency, there have been almost no apologies at that point. It was one of the least apologetic regimes we've ever had. But in the Clinton and in Obama, those apologies 
would have been inappropriate if the apology had included the words, it wasn't me and it wasn't us and it wasn't the United States as we know it, who did that with some prior regime that we've replaced and taken over. It would be in effect. I think institutions outlive the particular people who happen to populate and run them, but the institution remains the same collective agent over time. And we're to understand Clinton and Obama and Trump for that matter, are speaking for the same institution, the same collective and saying, yes, we did that, but we now have realized that we've changed. We're turning over an elite and we are rejecting what we ourselves did, not in the sense of denying that we did it. And I think that's important. I think that when the leader speaks for an organization or collective, they don't separate themselves. from. They speak for the collective and acknowledge the same collective or corporation that acted since the beginning of its existence.